This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Ken Sandy as he shares how to be a relationally wise shepherd. Ken is founder of Peacemaker Ministries and Relational Wisdom 360. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2023 General Assembly. Let's listen as Ken shares practical teaching and educational tools for pastors. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here, um, especially because what I want to do today is to truly help you get upstream of conflict. I spent 30 years at Peacemaker Ministries putting out the fires of conflict, and it's a whole lot better to prevent a fire than it is to put it out and deal with the smoke damage and the charred ruins of relationships afterwards. So we're going to talk today about things that can help prevent conflict, but also when it does come up, can resolve it. I want to start off just by giving you a quick overview of what we're going to talk about today. We've just got 50 short minutes in which I'm going to give you an overview of about 50 hours of training that's available, and you can decide if you want to follow up and dig into some of this more deeply. We're going to talk about the problem of conflict in the church, especially as it involves leaders in the church, and particularly pastors. I'm going to give you a brief interview to the concept of relational wisdom, which is a biblically grounded form of emotional intelligence. We're going to talk briefly about relational peacemaking, which integrates relational wisdom with biblical peacemaking. We're going to then apply some of these concepts in a very practical way to some leadership skills that I think you could practice as soon as you get home. I want, I want you to walk away from this, this time together with some very practical, immediately applicable skills. But then I'm also going to give you a growth strategy, how you can continue to grow and also raise the relational skill set of your leadership team and even of your whole congregation. So that's our agenda today. I want to start off with a, um, a question for you. Can anyone here name a pastor who lost his pulpit for poor Hebrew skills? I've been doing peacemaking for 41 years, and I've never, ever heard the elders coming and saying, Pastor, your Hebrew skills just really aren't quite up to snuff. We need to have you move on. On the other hand, can anyone here name a pastor who lost his pulpit for poor relational skills? Just in the last few months, this denomination has seen some people have to step down. Prominent, respected, outstanding preachers, and yet because of some relational difficulties, either with their, their, 
leadership team or the congregation itself have had to step aside from ministry, at least for a season. And I'm involved in many cases where people are removed from the pulpit entirely, or at least for a long period of time. And it's devastating. It's devastating. There's one relationship I've seen over the years. I've dealt with every kind of conflict you can imagine, child sexual abuse, seduction of counselees, adultery in marriage, lawsuits, church splits, you name it. I've seen it. I've seen in many, many, in fact, I'd say most of those scenarios, even something where there's been adultery in a marriage, I've seen those situations healed through confession, repentance, and forgiveness. And they're together now 20 years later in happy marriages. The one relationship I have rarely seen healed is when a pastor gets seriously sideways with his leadership team. I don't know why that is. If you've got some insights, please share them with me. But whether we put our pastors up on a pulpit and when we finally see that they're not quite as perfect, it's sort of like the scene in The Wizard of Oz when the curtain is pulled back and we realize he's just a mere man, do we lose respect and confidence because he's not like God? Or maybe it's the pastor himself wants to be up on that pedestal where everybody thinks he's almost perfect and now that they know he's flawed, he just feels exposed, he's got to move on. I don't know what it is. But I'm involved in dozens and dozens of these cases, and rarely, even if we bring about personal reconciliation between the pastor's leadership team, where there's authentic repentance and confession and personal forgiveness, in almost every case, they decide it's still better for him to depart in peace with good relationships, but to move on. So the word I have for you there is this is one relationship. If you wait until there's serious damage there's a good chance you're not going to heal that relationship in that particular church. I guess I'd use an analogy of melanoma. As soon as you see a skin blemish that looks like it might be melanoma, you want to get to the doctor, have it tested. If it is, they can do a surgical procedure, eradicate it, you're just fine. But if you let that go for too long, it's going to be a serious problem can kill you. So this is an issue for you as church leaders. You, you do not want to allow damaged, stressed relationships to go on and on and on, just hoping they're going to get better at some time in the future. In fact, when there is a forced pastoral exit, the damage is, is, can be just so much more than we anticipate going into it. In the, the handout you should have all gotten when you came in, there's, there's some by the back door. If you didn't, there's a URL code at the top of that that's just our, our ministry name, rw360.org, um, and then it's slash, forward slash, PCA GA 23. And you can download a PDF of that handout with live links because I'm going to be pointing you to a lot of articles. And there's one link on that that will take you to a document that if you asked an attorney to build that document for your church, he'd probably charge you $20,000. You can get it for free by clicking on that link. So do go home, take advantage of this material. Um, but one of the things you'll run into is an article there just called Strike the Shepherd. And here's some of the, the really sobering statistics about forced pastoral exits. Number one, 23 of the cur- 23% of currently serving pastors in the U.S. have been forced out of or fired from a previous pulpit. 23% have been forced out of a pulpit in the past. The average pastoral tenure in the local church today in the U.S. is 3.8 years, and it's even shorter for youth pastors. And there's a whole reason why they're very vulnerable to conflict. 
Some seminaries, I had a conversation with the president of one of our most respected reform seminaries, and he told me, he said, Ken, we can't publicize this, but we found through a survey that 50% of the people we graduated who came planning to go into pastoral ministry are not in pastoral ministry five years later. Now, I've got degrees in engineering and in law, and if it came back that half of the graduates of those professional schools were not in that profession five years, because those are professions you pursue, you do that education thinking of a lifelong career. And if those schools found out that half of those graduates were not in that profession five years later, there would be a shakeup at that school, a shakeup at that school. And I, one of the greatest frustrations I have, I'll be very candid, maybe there's someone who serves on a board of directors of a seminary here, but is trying to get conflict resolution training into our seminaries. We've got, we've got Greek and Hebrew and biblical history and homiletics and everything else, all the technical things that are valuable and essential, but the one thing most seminaries do not spend much time on is teaching about the very skills that will either make or break many pastors' careers. As I said at the beginning, you're not going to lose your pulpit if your Hebrew skills are not up to snuff. If your relational skills are not up to snuff, look out. And I'll be honest with you, the thing that breaks my heart the most, I feel sad for the pastor who gets forced out of his pulpit, but my heart breaks even more for his wife. The pastor usually has the experience of at least being able to engage his critics and respond and defend himself. There's a sense of at least I got to present my case. The wife is sitting at home hearing all these horrible things, all these ways her husband is being mistreated. It breaks her heart, and she has no recourse to respond to it. And it's heartbreaking. It's terrible. This is something we really have to begin to take more seriously. The average right now in the U.S. is 4,100 pastors leave the ministry prematurely or are forced out or fired in the U.S. today. That's 79 pastors a week leaving the church, the pulpit, early. 45% of the pastors terminated in a Southern Baptist state convention that ran a survey leave the ministry altogether. That is an enormous loss to the church. The education, the sacrifice that families made, someone going through seminary, obtaining a degree, going into ministry, and then a few years later being forced out and now he's selling cars or real estate or something else. That's a loss to the church, tremendous loss to the church. And only 2% of the conflicts in the church have to do with doctrinal issues. Now, I'm not going to diminish the importance of solid doctrine and theology and and uh, apologetics, we need to be prepared to defend the faith. But it's usually not defending doctrinal issues that will turn it, create problems. Now, we may have a, core, a difference of opinion on a doctrinal issue. If we've got good relational skills, we talk it through. We work it through. We understand. We come to an agreement. We find ways to, to work with each other. But without those good skills, relational skills, we're in a lot of trouble. So what's the cost to the church? In the corporate world, they say that the loss of an executive level uh, uh, professional typically costs an employer one to one and a half times their annual package, salary, retirement, health insurance, everything else, one to one and a half times. There's a book out called Elephant in the Boardroom that says the cost of the church is probably much higher because when you see a pastor forced out, 
not only do you have all the recruitment and training and moving and bringing up to speed issues of bringing in a new professional level person, but you've got a whole group of people who really feel their dear friend, the pastor, was booted out wrongly and they leave or they stop giving. So there's other costs associated with forced pastoral terminations that are even much higher. But if you use a conservative estimate on what the financial cost is, the church today, oops, wrong way, is spending $340 million a year in the United States on forced pastoral exits. What if we tithed off that for missions? I mean, that's an outrageous figure. And it's probably a lot higher. But that's not the worst. Money is vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. What is really tragic is a man who was called and equipped and trained to preach the gospel of Christ is silenced. And in some cases, he becomes so bitter toward the church, he doesn't talk to anybody about Jesus anymore. That's a spiritual cost, a high eternal spiritual cost. You've got gossip and division and, and forced exits, people leaving the church in these situations. I've been involved in many of these. I've been in congregational meetings where we're trying to save the church from a major split because of the division over church leadership. You've got a discredited witness in the community. Barna finds out year after year after year the main reason people want nothing to do with Christians is our hypocrisy. We proclaim a God of love and truth and acceptance and forgiveness, and yet we treat each other terribly. And it gives them a very convenient excuse to say, I want nothing to do with you all. And one of the things that breaks my heart the most is when you don't have a pastor there for a marriage that is teetering on the edge, and there's not somebody to intervene to help that couple work through sort of a difficult season in their marriage, and they finally just give up and they go and get a divorce. That's painful enough to watch for the adults, but it is far worse for the children. The effect on children, when there is a divorce, it's not inevitable. I want to emphasize that. It's not inevitable. But the odds of children a divorce having more problems dropping out of school, drug and alcohol abuse, sexual promiscuity, leaving the church, being divorced themselves someday, goes up significantly. It exposes our children to great harm down the road. So the cost for this stuff is very high. This is very, very high. So what do we do about it? Let's talk about a solution. I want to quickly introduce you to this concept of relational wisdom. We're going to take about 10 minutes to condense a 10-hour course. Think of this as an appetizer, if you will, and it's something I hope you'll choose to go back and eat the whole, whole meal. Principle number one is life is all about relationship. Life is all about relationship. I had a case one time where a man was a very wealthy man, was estranged from his son. He'd been put so much of his energy and time in building his company that he neglected his children. One son was so embittered he hadn't talked to his dad for 10, 15 years. The man was on his deathbed, literally. The doctor said he had just two or three days to live. When he was sitting in that hospital room, he did not say to his wife, Honey, bring me my stock portfolio one more time. I want to see my net worth. Now, he may have been consumed by building his net worth most of his life. He may have been preoccupied with making money and building his company. But when push came to shove at the end of his life, there's only one question on his mind. Did John Jr. get on a plane? Will he be here in time before I go? And so often it takes a crisis to get us to realize what is really important in our lives. And it's our relationships, our families, our people we work with, people we established a church with and went through all the ordeals and felt, you know, dealt with crises. But often it takes a crisis to get us to remember that, to remember that. 
And one of the most important things I've learned over the last 10 years is I've shifted my focus more to the concept of relational wisdom than peacemaking. We still do peacemaking, we still do conciliation, but my heart is in trying to help people avoid those, those terribly divisive conflicts, divorce and church splits and so on. And the one thing I've come more and more aware of, and I should have seen it long ago, is how much emotions drive our lives, our relationships, and our conflicts. And I think we in the PCA are especially vulnerable to being blinded to this because we tend to think that we're very theological, we're very doctrinal, we've got good theology, and we're very rational, we're very principled, and we can make all of our arguments in a very nice, tight, logical way. And we think we're being rational, and we're not. We are using our rational part of our mind to justify and support what's going on in our heart and our emotions. I don't like this guy, and I will find a way to disagree with him and prove that he's wrong. If any of you are familiar with the book by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind, I highly recommend it to you. He talks, it's The Righteous Mind, Haidt is H-A-I-D-T. But he talks about how our moral, particularly our religious and political convictions, are developed not by rational thinking beforehand, they come to us by intuition and emotion and our gut experiences in life, and then we use our rational mind to justify and affirm our positions. The metaphor he uses is an elephant with a monkey riding the elephant. <laughs> and just the, the size of those two creatures gives you an idea of what he's trying to communicate. Our emotions drive our relationships, and then our rational mind just sort of justifies and vindicates the position we're taking. If you want to have a vivid day-to-day picture of it, Watch the news some night and look at, uh, what's her name, um, Jeanine Pierre, who's the White House secretary, press secretary, Jean-Pierre. Um, she stands there. She never says, yeah, I think, you know, the president may have gotten this one wrong. I think this policy was not quite right. We need to. No, her job is to support and validate and defend the position of the administration no matter how bad it is. And that's what our rational mind often does. And I see that in many cases when I'm called to mediate between elders on a session, how we can rationalize positions. But the main thing is, I don't like this guy, and I want to get rid of him. And that's going to drive it. Um, Our emotions not only move us to do good things, compassion, kindness, gentleness, all the things we see in our Lord Jesus and sometimes in ourselves, but our emotions actually can overthrow us in a concept that we teach a lot about in our training called amygdala hijacking. Your amygdala is like your experiential relational filing cabinet, and it stores away experiences in life, especially traumatic experience, experiences with deep emotions attached to them. And when you get into a similar situation down the road, you import the emotions from that previous experience into the current one. Have you ever been in a situation where someone seemed to be really overreacting? You're like, whoa, why are you so upset about it? Well, you tapped into something that may have happened 10 years ago, and we don't even realize we're doing it. Now, there's ways to counteract that, but you've got to be mindful. It's like your car. If you're aware that it pulls really firmly to the right, you're prepared to take the wheel and turn it to the left when you hit the brakes. But if you're not aware of that, you're going to keep going in the ditch all the time, and you're going to wonder, why am I in the ditch again? Why am I in the ditch with my relationships all the time? because you don't realize how much your emotions are driving you. So here's the paradigm that we're emphasizing. It's called relational wisdom, and there's a couple of major components to it. Number one is God designed us to be three-dimensional, to be God-aware, 
to be focused on God and relationship with God, to be in relationship with ourselves, interestingly, and also in relationship with people around us. So three dimensions, God, self, and other. But in each of those dimensions, there's two dynamics going on. One of them is an awareness component. What do I know about God, who he is, what he's like, what he's up to? The theology of God and his characters, promises. And then there's also the awareness of myself. What are my strengths, my weaknesses? Where am I tempted? Where am I vulnerable? What are my dreams? What are my hopes? What are my fears? How well do I know myself, what's going on inside of me, both generally and in this moment? And then how well do I know this other person? Am I aware? Am I reading body language? Can I see from the look on their face that they're feeling overwhelmed and threatened by my, by my words? Is this really a good time to talk right now? Maybe it's not. Is there a better way to approach this person? How aware are we? How do we read body language? How do we read the look in eyes? How do we read the tone of voice of someone else? There's massive amounts of information coming to us in any conversation, yet most of us tune most of it out. All we hear is the, the specific words. And we don't even have the ability to pick up on this difference. You, you run into someone in the coffee shop, and you say, hey, Steve, how are you doing today? And maybe one day he says, oh, I'm doing okay. But another day you say, Steve, how are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm okay. Those are two completely different answers. Because when someone goes, oh, I'm okay, that pause there, that momentary pause means I'm not okay. But I don't know if you have the time or you care enough to do anything about it, so I'm just going to give you a teeny little hint and see what you do with it. And if you don't say, hey, what's going on? I'll just walk away and I won't have been hurt by your rejection. This is especially true of men. Men have a hard time saying, I'm really having a hard day. I've got a problem. I don't know what to do about it. That is so hard for men to do, to admit they've got a problem they can't solve and they're weak and they need help. So they lay down cards, one at a time, just a little bit of information, hoping someone will pick up on it and respond to it. Every Sunday, there are people walking through the foyers of your churches, and they're dropping hints right and left about struggles in their lives. And yet most of us have not learned how to pick up on those things. There's a test that's available through one of our blogs where you read 32 sets of eyes. That's all you see is eyes, and you have to guess the emotion behind that set of eyes. I thought it was a crazy test. I thought, that's stupid. No one can do that. But I said, well, I'll try it. And Okay, anxiety, fear... Sadness. Mm, looks sort of sad. Click. Oh, I got it right. I went through 32 sets, got an 80%. All I saw was the eyes. Add the rest of the face, add the tone of voice, I had the body length. Massive amounts of information coming to us if we learn how to read it. Okay, but the other component of this thing is not just awareness. We've got to do something with it. How do I engage? How do I respond to God? Worship, adoration, faithfulness, obedience, trust. There's all sorts of imperatives in the Bible about how I relate to God. How do I relate to myself? Self-discipline, putting off the old, putting on the new, saying no to the flesh, staying away from tempting situations, making myself accountable, all sorts of choices on how I engage myself. And then how do I engage the other person? Patience, kindness, love, gentle correction, forgiveness. Many imperatives in the Bible. So here's your basic paradigm for relational wisdom. God awareness, God engagement. Self-awareness, self-engagement, other awareness, other engagement. If you're familiar with the concept of emotional intelligence, it's the bottom two-thirds of that paradigm. If you've read Dan Goleman, it's self-awareness, self-management is the word he uses, social awareness, social engagement. They use a little bit different terminology. It's exactly the same as the bottom two-thirds. What's missing in secular EI? The top part of the paradigm. 
God. He's the motivation, he's the power, he's the strength, he's everything in changing these skills, everything. We as Christians should have so much superior emotional intelligence compared to the people around us if we're looking to God as the source and the model and the motive to develop this skill that every one of us has a capacity for. Relational wisdom is really, in many ways, it's nothing more than living out the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Love your neighbor as you realize you love yourself. Self-awareness, other-awareness, God-awareness. You'll find these 360 passages all over the Bible where it starts with a focus on God, then it talks about how do I manage myself, then how do I engage my person, it goes back up to God. There's a full 360. And those of you who are trained in seminary, you know that those passages, the beginning and the end up here, they're, they're indicative passages. They indicate who God is and what he's like. They're motivational passages. If we get those passages, like bookends, then we're motivated to do the imperatives on managing ourselves, dealing with our own sin, loving our neighbor, forgiving our enemies. It's when we understand who God is. You see the same kind of pattern in Exodus 20, the Decalogue. The Decalogue doesn't just start with, thou shalt have no other gods before me. There's a prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then there's ten implied therefores. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, you shall not make images. Therefore, you shall not steal. Therefore, you shall not kill. Is if we get who God is and what he's done for us, we have the motivation and we appropriate the power to obey the commandments. When I'm in a mediation, a church split, a lawsuit, a divorce, and people are just locked in this, this conflict, inevitably, the key thing that's contributed to that deadlock is they've removed God from the conversation. They're caught up in what I call a horizontal conflict. I'm going to use all the Bible verses I can find to justify me and condemn you. You're wrong, I'm right. I'm right, you're wrong. You're wrong, I'm right. And we go back and forth and back and forth this way and make no progress. And our goal of mediation is let's get back up and focus on God. Who is he? What is he like? He forgave you 10,000 talents of gold of sin? And you're concerned because this person has hurt you with 100 denarii worth of a wrong? We're just like that unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. And it's getting God back in the picture that changes everything. Um, as you'll see, if you, if you get into the course, we tie all of this to the gospel. Relational wisdom is simply an outpouring of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts with an awareness of what God has done for us in Christ through the gospel, and it flows over to how we appropriate that power in, in the process of sanctification and imitating Christ and loving our neighbor and even loving our enemy, doing good to those who hate us, etc. It's all an outflowing of the gospel itself. And that's the main thing in our training when we're doing conciliation training is how do you bring the gospel back in and get people to remember once again who they are. This person, he may have hurt me, but he's a brother in Christ. Okay, one of the ways we teach all this, if you've read any of my material before, you know I love acrostics. Um, David Paulus had once said, I never met a concept I couldn't put into acrostic. And I said, yeah, David, you never met a nuance you couldn't nuance further. Um, but we, we love acrostics because they're simple ways to take complex theological and neurological things, put them together in a solid way, but a simple way that we can actually memorize. In our training, we actually encourage people to just pick one of these acrostics. Uh, SOG relates to the whole paradigm, self-aware, otherware, God-aware. Um, 
GPS is just God awareness and God engagement. And if you just practice these things for 30 days, just focus in on one of these acrostics every day, pray about it, think about it, and through the day, look for ways to practice it. That's how you develop a habit. It takes about 30 days. And you're basically reprogramming your mind on how you automatically respond to conflict. Okay, let's move into the second phase of this, and that's just biblical peacemaking. Many of you are probably familiar with my book, The Peacemaker, and we're basically now taking The Peacemaker and integrating that with relational wisdom. It's sort of supercharging peacemaker, peacemaking, if you will. And it ties into the three opportunities we talk about in The Peacemaker to glorify God, to grow to be like Christ, and serve our brother. That's exactly what Paul is talking about uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 through 11.1, he's just talked about a whole raft of conflicts in the Corinthians church, just recent last part of 10, he's dietary concerns, and he pauses for a moment at the end of that chapter, he says, how can I summarize this? Okay, listen, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever kind of conflict you do, do it all for the glory of God. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's God-aware, self-aware, other-aware. Those opportunities in every conflict. We talked about the slippery slope. This is part of self-awareness. What is my inclination when I'm in a conflict? I'm a conflict avoider. I don't like conflict. I want to avoid it. But you know what? Back me into a corner. Man, I can flip over to that attack side real easily. I'm an attorney. And I can prosecute and I can defend. So I have to guard against these tendencies that I have. And so that's what this slope helps us to do is self-evaluate. We've got, this is our systematic theology basically for peacemaking, to glorify God, get the log out of your own eye, take responsibility for yourself, gently restore, how do I share the other, with the other person in a way that you can see his contribution, and then go and be reconciled. We've used that process over and over for 41 years Marriage, divorce, marriage and divorce situations, warring tribes in Africa. It's just a simple biblical paradigm. Um, we talk about the, the role of, of idols, of desires, good desires that grow into demands, that we start to judge other people and uh, punish them. Almost every conflict, I, in fact, I'd say every conflict I've been involved in a church, major church conflict, I will always hear this phrase, all I wanted was... And that's always, to me, a warning sign. I'm about to hear about an idol. Because we, we, we try to say, all I wanted was to see our church get more effective at proclaiming the gospel to the lost souls in our community. What could be better than that? Well, well what did that cause you to do? Well, the pastor wasn't training us enough, and he, we need to get rid of him. And the elders wouldn't see that, so I just started this gossip and backbiting campaign underground to drive him away. I'm, I'm not, that's exactly the argument someone gave to me, not quite that explicitly, but when you distilled his words down, that was his rationale. He wanted the gospel to go forth, so he broke all sorts of commandments in slandering a pastor to get rid of him. That's what idols do to us. They corrupt us. Um, we talk about confession. How do you make a good confession, a thorough confession? Those seven A's have helped to save more marriages. When I'm doing a divorce mediation, they come to me to try to work out property settlement and ch- child custody. What we're trying to do, first of all, is there any way we can save this marriage, turn it around? And the key to that is confession, repentance, taking responsibility for how people have contributed to the breakdown of that relationship. One of my great, I'll tell you, one of my greatest joys is to have a couple in my office who came to me to do the property settlement. Instead, they're sitting there in my office weeping in each other's arms. 
confessing and forgiving. Because what it says to me is, those three kids tonight will have mom and dad at home, not in two different places. And that's everything to me. Those are the cases that move me the most. And those are the cases, by the way, that you as shepherds of the flock should be deeply concerned about too. Again, because the, con- the consequences to children when mom and dad go through a divorce is, is so serious. We should fight for our marriages. Promises of forgiveness. What does forgiveness really mean? I won't dwell on this incident. I'm not going to bring it up against you again. I'm not going to let it, um, I'm not going to talk to others about it. I'm not going to allow this to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I've had so many people look at those promises and they say, I've never heard of forgiveness like that. But that's what mirrors the, the forgiveness of God in Christ. As far as the East is from the West. So far have I separated your sins. We should model that. One of my premises is this. Christians, I believe, are the most forgiven people in the world. We are the most forgiven people in the world. If if our theology is correct, we are washed clean by the blood of Christ. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. But that's not always our hallmark. We can hold on to grudges so well. And we should just say, Lord, forgive me. After all you've forgiven me, 10,000 talents of gold, of sin, you've washed away by the blood of Christ. And a lot of it I haven't even repented of. I didn't realize I did it, and still you forgave me. And here's a brother asking me, begging me for forgiveness where he did. How could I withhold it from him? How could I withhold it? And then also just biblical negotiation. We talk a lot about is how do you work through issues? about do we hire a new youth pastor? Do we do a building program? Do we send the the youth team to Mexico or Nepal this year? Um, All sorts of subs of issues that come up in our churches and in our homes that we can train our people to negotiate in a constructive way. One pastor came to me and said one of the smartest things he ever did was teach the pause principle to the leader of the women's ministry in their church because before that, they were always coming to him and saying, Pastor, you've got to help us. We've got this disagreement over this new curriculum. We've got this disagreement over this. He was always having to intervene and help them. And he finally decided to train the leaders on how to negotiate. And they stopped coming to him because they were walking through those issues, applying the principle. They weren't taking up his time. And all these principles, both relational wisdom and the peacemaking principles, what they do is they allow you to appropriate one of the most beautiful concepts in Scripture. I call it the golden result. It's a corollary to the golden rule. The golden rule, as we all know, is do to others as you would have them do to you. Well, the golden result is other people will usually treat you the way you are treating them. Usually, not always. I would say 80 to 90% of the time. And I've been involved mediating like a legal dispute between two Christian brothers. They've been in court and legal battles for two years attacking and justifying. They get into a mediation process. We walk them through the process of getting the log out of their own eye, asking God to show them their sins. And one of them comes into a meeting and says, you know, I need to ask your forgiveness, Bob. This is really all my fault. If I'd just done this in the first place, we wouldn't be here. I'm so sorry. Nine times out of ten, Bob's response is, it's not, well, I'm glad you finally see how wrong you are. I've seen that occasionally, but rarely. Usually what Bob says well, now, hold on a minute, Jim. It wasn't all your fault. I think if I'd come to you, no, no, Bob, it was if I'd, no, Jim, it's my, and now they're in a whole new conflict, and my heart is just thrilled because they're doing exactly what God says we should do. We become our own chief accuser. My sins seem more like logs, and yours seem more like 
specs. That's when you see reconciliation. And so if you attack and blame and accuse someone else, inevitably they will do it, almost inevitably, they will do the same back to you. If you confess, humble yourself, show humility, and admit your wrongs, you'll be amazed how often the other person does the same thing back. Okay, let's apply these things in the context of leadership. And these are some of the practical skills that you can take home with you as leaders. Now, on the back of your handout, which, again, you can download through that URL at the top of the first page, you've got live links, and every one of the principles I'm about to share with you, you can go to our website, download a whole article that goes into a lot more detail. But I want to at least give you a taste of these things, and I want to encourage you to consider what a lot of churches do with this list on the back of that page is they use it for leadership training. When you're about to have a session meeting, you just decide every week or every time you meet, you're just going to go through one of those, those articles and talk about it, pray about it. How are we going to apply this? How can we do this better? You can use this as just part of a regular small-scale upgrading of your relational skills with your leadership team, or you can share it with your small groups, your growth groups in your church. Lots of ways to do it. Um, number one, <laughs> this would be down at... Uh, Uh, what is it, number seven on your list. And that is, beware the seductiveness of power. Last year I did a workshop on the misuse of power in our denomination. And it's just, it's, it's such a tragic, heartbreaking concept that people are made to be shepherds of the flock can sometimes misuse that power. Now sometimes in abhorrent ways, seduction of a woman in counseling. That'd be a gross violation. But there's times we don't even realize. In fact, I would say most of the time that I see church leaders misusing their power, they're oblivious to it. They don't even realize. They think they're doing a good job. They think they're being gentle. But one of the simplest rules I talked about in that workshop, and there's a link to that whole handout in this uh, handout today, but I just point out, just realize that your words as a pastor are magnified tenfold in the ears of a member talking to you. You think you're talking in a gentle voice, a reasonable voice, very kind voice, and they're hearing you as the spiritual leader in the church, and it hits their ears, their hearts much stronger. I saw this in a very vivid way one time, just in God's providence. I was admonishing my son Jeff, probably six or seven years old. He'd done something. I was correcting him on something. I was looking at him, and I'm pretty tall, and he was down about here. I was looking at him. He was looking up at me, and I was speaking in a pretty stern voice, and I suddenly realized there was a look of absolute fear on my son's face. I had never struck him. I I don't do physical things when I'm angry, but my voice can get stern, and I saw on his face this fear, and it just, just broke my heart. I don't want my son to fear me. Not in that way. Not that he'd be somehow harmed. And so just, just being aware of that and all the ways that power can be seductive. There's a second link at uh, item number seven. It talks about, the title is, Power Causes Brain Damage. There are more and more studies coming out that's, that show that as people gain power and influence, they, they're less and less concerned about pleasing other people. And they're more and more thinking about how people need to be pleasing them. And what happens, the theory is, the part of the brain that has to do with empathy just withers from disuse. You're not looking at body language. You're not thinking about their positions. You're just forcing your view. And so I I gave that same little spiel to a bunch of two stars and three stars of the Pentagon a few weeks ago. I said, fortunately, they were all Christians. But, uh, you know, people at, at the highest level in the corporate world, in the military, and in the church, think of how many very prominent church leaders 
have fallen in recent years. Power went to their heads, it became oblivious and insensitive to others, and boom, they're out. Another concept to be aware of is always bringing the gospel. Always bring the gospel. I cannot emphasize this enough. We, we can preach the gospel from the pulpit on Sunday, but do we live the gospel when we sit down and talk with somebody later in the week? I've been involved in meetings with pastors and elders where they've been arguing back and forth 70 pages of emails and letters and documents justifying their positions. In one case, as I was flying down to Orlando to meet with a team, I was reading through all the documentation, probably three or four scripture citations per page, 90 pages, 300 scripture citations. Not a single citation to anything remotely related to the gospel. It was all what would be often called law, the thou shalt. Thou shalt says this, and you didn't do it, and thou shalt says this, and I did do it. I'm vindicated. I'm righteous because I'm obeying what God commands me to do, and you're wrong because you're not. Everything was either used for condemnation or vindication, self-righteousness. And when I met with these guys, I walked them through an exercise about what was going on, and they just, they just became broken when they realized they had completely left out the fact that a man named Jesus Christ went up on a cross 2,000 years ago and died for their sins. And I pointed out to them, the gospel doesn't mean that we just overlook everything and we hold hands and sing kumbaya and get along. No, the gospel tells us sin is so serious, the Son of God had to die for it. It's like cancer. Cancer is really serious. You've got to take it seriously. You've got to face it. You've got to have the proper diagnosis. You've got to have the proper treatment. But the treatment is directed toward healing, not destroying, not destroying. And that's the gospel. We take the sin seriously. We confront it. But we say there's hope. Yes, you had an affair with a coworker, But Jesus Christ died for that. And there is room as you repent of that sin and seek forgiveness and build new boundaries and are patient with your spouse that you can rebuild this marriage as a testimony to the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. You take the sin seriously, but it's in the direction of healing and exaltation of Christ. Be approachable and be accountable. There's two articles in that, that item on your thing. I encourage you so strongly, download those articles, share them with your leadership teams. Many of the pastors who get sideways with their leaders and especially members of the church have just become less and less approachable. People try to talk with you. They may want to just engage you on Sunday. Um, or maybe they have a concern. Maybe they have a suggestion. Maybe they have a criticism. But they, they learn the hard way. Woo, you don't want to share a criticism with a pastor. If anyone has that attitude that you're unapproachable, that's when things just build up and build up and build up, and then they explode. Apply relational wisdom to build passport. Passport is an authorization to go somewhere you don't have an inherent right to be. Passport is, is what you build with people where they're willing to open up their lives and, as Paul Tripp puts it, share the fine china of their lives with you. Do they trust you to, enough to put a china cup in your hands, Pastor? I'm struggling with pornography. I'm so afraid that you're going to reject me and, and just think I'm just sort of a second or third class. There are so many people in our church right now with that struggle, and they are so afraid to come forward. They don't trust. That not, it's not just that it won't be publicized, but they, the fear they have most of all is you'll think less of them. You'll think they're somehow, ooh, how can you say you're a Christian and struggle with that? Do, do I really know that you love me? Are you, are you meeting with me today because it's your job as my pastor, or are you meeting with me because you care? Because you really care about me. And finally, can you really help me? 
Do you have the training? Do you have the track record? Have I seen evidence of the fact that you help people, you shepherd them through these hard times? And every time you step into the pulpit to preach, every time you engage people in your church, you're either building passport, or in all too many cases, we can lose passport. And so it's a conscious process. We talk about some of the things you can do to be always building passport. Three Ps of satisfaction. Anytime you're involved in helping people resolve a conflict, what you want to be doing is delivering three different kinds of satisfaction. Process, personal, and product. I cannot emphasize how important this is. When people come to you, let's say there's some folks in your church, they've got a disagreement over something, they come to you and they want you to help solve it, they've got a, usually a substantive issue driven often by some emotional things, but on the surface they're going to say, we don't think we should do this thing with our youth program this year. And they're, they're really feeling strongly about it. And they're, they're focusing on the product. Either one person wants the program, one person doesn't. That's where they're focusing generally. But what happens is, in many cases, you, you're, you're limited on the results. Maybe you're already committed to a certain program. You, you don't have an ability, or it's a contract. You, you can't violate it, whatever. You often don't have a lot of room on the outcome of the substantive issue. But you've got lots of latitude about the process and how you treat people. If you give them a fair process where everybody has an opportunity to share their views, they feel like they've been heard, they feel like they've been listened to, and you say, now, John, let me, let me make sure I understand you. Is what you're saying is this and this? And you go, no, no, no. I said, well, help me again. And he says it again. I said, okay, so what you're saying is this. He goes, that's it. You got it. Okay, that's process satisfaction. That's personal satisfaction. How you treat them, the look on your eye, the tone of voice. Are you, are you giving them sort of like, oh, I can't believe I'm here it's all these hours. I could be home. You do that kind of stuff, and you're losing people. But here's what I found, is even if you cannot give people the result they want, if you give them process and personal satisfaction, they will walk away satisfied. At an $8 million oil and gas, $8 million oil and gas case in Texas years ago, two Christian-owned family, two family, Christian families owned these corporations that bought and sold an oil and gas field, didn't produce as much uh, revenue as one family wants. They went back and sued the sellers for fraud, went through a year of, of litigation and discovery, all these attorneys involved, three outstanding arbitrators in the case, came back and they found entirely for the defendant. They said, no, there was no misrepresentation, no fraud. So the plaintiff in that case lost the case entirely. The plaintiff's attorney was a non-Christian woman who was on a contingency fee where she was going to get 25% of what she recovered. 25% of $8 million would have been a $2 million fee. 25% of zero, she collected nothing for a year's worth of work. She sent in one of the most positive evaluations I've ever seen of an arbitration process. And she said, you know, I knew we may or may not win the case. You win a few, you lose a few but I love your process, and I love how your arbitrators treated the people. Zero product satisfaction, high process, and everything else. Um, this is the link I really encourage you to take very seriously and download. This is a legal risk management document worth about $20,000. A lot of the lawsuits churches get into today is they've not clearly documented a lot of their policies Marriage and divorce, confidentiality, conflict resolution, church discipline. Will you tell another church down the road that someone from your church who's fleeing from confrontation has now joined their church? You do that today, you can easily have a letter from an attorney threatening a lawsuit for invasion of privacy, infliction of emotional distress. Used to be 
courts let churches get away with that kind of thing. Today, if you don't have it clearly laid out in your documentation, you can get sued. So I won't go into more detail, but that's something I really encourage you. It's a document you can adapt. A lot of PCA churches are using that just to go beyond what the BCO says. Um, I find the BCO is so complicated that I, as an attorney, have a hard time understanding it. The average person joining the church, it is totally Greek to them. This is written in pastoral language. It's much more accessible. Okay, so quickly, here's some resources to follow up on. If you like the appetizer I've given to you today on these concepts, all of these concepts are available in a lot more information through that handout you've got. All the articles, all the key concepts, you can download them. Um, I love 1 Timothy 4.15. Practice these things. Immerse yourselves in them so that others may see your progress. You can be a model as you grow, as you improve. What I would love to have someone in your church say a year from now is, Pastor, what's happened to you over the last 12 months? You're so different today. You're accessible. You're, frankly, you seem a lot more humble. You're not as defensive about things. I like the new pastor. We can all grow. I'm talking about me, frankly. Um, a lot of our stuff is available for free, everything in that uh, that handout. Uh, we've got free downloads. I especially encourage you to download the Guiding People to Conflict. It's a condensation of all of our training for church conflict resolution. We've got a whole training and certification program that's available online. You don't have to leave, leave town to, to take advantage of it. Um, one of those courses is called the RW Shepherd, and specifically designing all this material for the context of being a leader in the church. Another major concept, you'll see details there, it's called the Peace Sower Team. It's Exodus 18, like Moses, where he trained other people in the community of faith to carry part of the load of dealing with relational problems. We've got secular material we take into secular settings, businesses, the Pentagon. We've taught this on Capitol Hill to senators and congressmen. It's a great way to take biblical content out into your communities for engagement and evangelism. And then finally, I would just like to encourage you to consider coming out to Montana, which is also known as the Porch of Heaven. In November, uh, at our annual conference, we'll have two solid days of training by some of our expert people on all these concepts. I'd love to see some of you join us in Montana. Please feel free to contact our office if there's more questions. I'd love to follow up with your churches. We love to serve PCA churches. God bless you all. Thanks. Hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.